This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. From Joy 94.9 in Melbourne, I'm Stephanie Longmuir and you're on Dying to Tell a podcast series where we explore end of life and death in a frank and honest way. Have you ever wondered why some Australian TV programs and films include a warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to use caution as the film may contain images or voices of dead persons? And what is the relevance of a smoking ceremony? And why is dying in country so important to Indigenous people? Most of us know little about Aboriginal life and virtually nothing about Indigenous funeral traditions. On this episode of Dying to Tell, we are going to explore the fascinating end-of-life rituals and traditions of our first people when we meet Joe Ross, a Boonaba elder from the Kimberley, and Dave Kostorfen, a registered nurse who spent many years working in remote Indigenous communities. That's coming up on Dying to Tell. This is Dying to Tell, bringing to life conversations about death and dying. If you're dying to know, we are Dying to Tell on Joy 94.9. Last year, I travelled into the Kimberley with a group of parents to look at Yiramalai Wesley Studio School, which is a unique school created through a special partnership between the Aboriginal people of the Fitzroy Valley community in the Kimberley and the community of Wesley College here in Melbourne. The group was led by Joe Ross, who is also known as Willigan, and you'll hear him refer to himself as Willigan and also Joe throughout this interview. Joe is a Boonaba elder and a leader and one of the key people um, to get the school going. Joe's father also just happened to be the undertaker in Fitzroy Crossing for 40 years. And when he told me this, I needed to pull out my uh, recording device and ask him a few questions. Now, I just have to say that this interview was recorded on the school grounds at Yiramalay, which is part of the Leopold Downs cattle station, about 80 kilometres west of Fitzroy Crossing. And when I listened back to this interview, Gina, um, it was almost hypnotic for me with the bird noises and and the insects humming away, signalling sunset. It is truly one of the most beautiful places um, that I've ever been. So let's have a listen to Joe as we begin this interview with him introducing himself. uh, I'm from uh, born in Fitzroy Crossing and uh, I belong to a language group called Bunaba and uh, we're sort of north to sort of northwest of the township of Fitzroy Crossing and uh, we're like the traditional owners and um, I've uh, sort of worked, I'm an electrician by trade but I've worked in uh, community development and worked for my community and sort of growing up uh, uh, both in the sort of uh, Aboriginal side and the non-Aboriginal side. And uh, the today I'm uh, say today, yeah. And today I'm uh, out at Yiramalay, a, a school project with Wesley College Melbourne and the Bunaba community, on Leopold Down Station. So this morning, Joe, you said to me in the um, in your language, the Bunaba language, there is no word for hello, mm. only for goodbye. <laughs> and I 
was wondering if perhaps you could tell me a little bit about how your people, the Bunaba people, farewell their deceased um, and maybe yeah. some of the traditions around death and dying within the, within your community. Yeah, well, there's uh, uh, not that they, they don't sort of welcome people in the Western way, but it's very important uh, for Aboriginal people throughout all of Australia to uh, uh, feel comfortable that people are coming into their country and that other Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people are respecting their lands and they just don't come in uh, unannounced and uh, there's protocols, you know, like a lot of Aboriginal people have protocols about where they welcome people. Uh, it could be like smoking ceremonies or water ceremonies. And uh, today the uh, the group with yourselves and that were welcomed at the Yurimalay by the Yurimalay traditional owners and uh, in their traditional way. And so from a dying point of view, like when uh, people Aboriginal people, you know, believe in the the spirit of the uh, land and also the spirit of the person is all one big cycle, and that the uh, bit like reincarnation, that when you die, it's not just about you dying and disappearing off this earth and never to be heard again. It's one big cycle for people, and uh, uh, and so today I was talking about the process, uh, how the brothers of a person or the you know female or male are entrusted with the trusted with the funeral sort of procedures um, and funeral we say in a western way but the process by which your body is prepared and managed and then finally when the uh, process of uh, you know that your bones are taken and packed up and moved to your traditional grounds and the ceremonies that surround the, ensuring that the spirit returns to the country again and to return as a person, or in some cases even as, uh, you know, stones and uh, animals and that. And I gave you some examples in Bunaba country of uh, how that uh, people believe in the, in the songs and the ceremonies that, that happened here. And so with the uh, person here, they... they uh, don't do it anymore, but in old traditional ways, they'd put you up in a big platform on top of one of these bohemia trees here, and uh, your brothers would be managing and making sure that you know the uh, you know the, your body is looked after, and then finally, when all the bones are cleaned, they're all rubbed in red ochre, and uh, uh, the ceremonies and songs then help through the process of packing that up in a big roll of paper bark, and then you take it up into uh, into your country, and oftentimes put in the crevices of caves or rocks and that. And so that's your physical remains. And then your spiritual remains is they wait for you to return back in through the signs of, uh, you know, they get the signs either through young babies that are born and people that grow up. And you'll find a lot of people have names of uh, uh, their ancestors who used to live maybe one or two generations before them. And so their belief is that they come back as that person. And uh, in my case, it was an old man named Willigan. He was a uh, old bloke, Tom Munger, from uh, Flora Valley Station over in Jaru country over Halls Creek Way. But he worked in Bunaba country and died, he died here. And his spirit came back as me. That's what my grandmother believed. And so they gave me the name of Willigan. And then the importance is then about the management and the process by which your spirit doesn't you know, get trapped in this land, that you return back into the country and you come back from that, from the land to become a person again. And just with names, Joe, you mentioned today also that 
when somebody dies, if you have a similar, if you have the same name as them, that name can't be spoken anymore. Yeah. How, how does that work? Well, you'll hear a lot in, uh, especially in the sort of uh, desert areas, uh, they have a, a very common name, Kumanje, uh, uh, and Bunaba people say Ingi, that's Ingi like the name, Ingi so no name, and so the uh, uh, it's, it's forbidden to disrespect the spirit of the person who died by invoking their name. So, you know, it's not uncommon that you might be cruising along one day and someone with the same name as you dies that no one's allowed to say your name again. So you end up with a new name. And then you have to sort of remember, oh, it can't be called Joe again, so they'll call you another name. And so that's that's purely and really respectful in the culture of Aboriginal people throughout all of Australia. Um, and then after a while, you might some people might start calling you Joe again, like me, or you just remain with the new name that they've given you. Even um, even on your birth certificate, there's about three or four other names that you know <laughs> have gone before you. And that same respect um, is is with photos as well, because I know that you know oftentimes when you're watching movies and things, there'll be a little, um, especially you know. If someone has died recently, there will be a notice saying that you know there's visions of of a deceased person. So how, how does how does that work? Yeah. Uh, so when I know when I was growing up, I used to watch my mums and uncles and aunties and that, and they they would uh, destroy the photos of relatives, you know, that passed away, yeah. and images and because uh, once again there's a belief that you need to let people go and give them a chance to return back, you know, into the into the land again and not have them hanging around in um, what the Christian people call maybe like limbo, you know, and uh, stay around. And so it's very important you have like smoking ceremonies and uh, to clear the country and clear the belongings and the house and the spirit of the person so that they don't get trapped here. That's what people believe. They might get trapped here and they won't continue the cycle that they should be, spiritual so, cycle. So a smoking ceremony is effectively a cleansing? A cleansing, yeah, cleansing. In a lot of ways, some, you'll see a lot in Australia around Aboriginal people, they'll have you welcome in the country by uh, smoking ceremonies. Well, that's cleansing any spirits or bad spirits or bad feelings you might bring to the country. And that's like welcoming you and cleansing you as you enter the country, but also the after someone passes away in this country here, Bunaba country and uh, Fitzroy Crossing with the other three language groups, there'll be a very uh, solemn and serious sort of smoking ceremony about smoking the the places of uh, where the person would have lived and uh, uh, operated, you know, and um, uh, spent most of their lives, and also the process by which you get rid of their belongings and distribute that to the family through the uh, smoking ceremonies just after the funeral. Um, and some cultures like ours have, uh, you know, in a real serious, if you were really serious about the funeral arrangement, the in-laws don't go to the, you don't go to your in-laws' uh, funeral, burial, you know, ceremonies. You stay back at the uh, smoke ceremony mm. and you wait there for the people to come from the burial. So, Joe, you told me before that your father was a funeral director. Yes. And you also pointed out a cemetery, like a, a, a um, Western-style 
cemetery in yeah. the Fitzroy Crossing area. Are um, Aboriginal people now buried, or how? Yeah. What happens when when Aboriginal people die? Now I know traditionally you, you explained what happened with their bones, but but these days, you know, when someone dies, what happens? The there's still uh, some formal requests for uh, traditional burials in uh, really like for, for some very old senior elders and those uh, the uh, and that's in the Kimberley but you go to places like you know Northern Territory and other places there's uh, still the traditional uh, uh, ways of burying people uh, still being carried out today in their cultures and so but for the majority of people now, do you get uh, through the sort of uh, new Western version of uh, way of burial? And my father was a um, uh, undertaker for over 45 years, and uh, so I got to see, you know, or got uh, drawn in or dragged into helping him sometimes bury people or pick up people bodies and that from morgues and and that. But uh, people. Uh, you know, you can get. I showed you the old Pioneer Cemetery, where people are buried, and uh, unfortunately, the Fitzroy River is now cutting into that cemetery, and uh, very sad. But uh, uh, people, people now sort of uh, don't follow the olden ways of traditional burial unless the elder asks for it, and then the elder can go through a legal process with the West Australian government of uh, getting approval to be buried in a traditional way. But an Indigenous person or someone from your community would never be cremated, always buried? Yeah, there's no, um, what do you call them, uh, crematoriums here. Right. Uh, and the, uh, um, I don't think Aboriginal people uh, couldn't sort of think about uh, cremation. It's a bit of a weird concept uh, of uh, I suppose it was also for the really old senior elders like my mum and all them when they were young and all that and they started seeing people being buried in the ground. That was sort of like a bit strange again that they wasn't following the traditional methods and, you know, uh, preparing people's uh, remains to be taken back to their country. So you go through all these phases in life and uh, at some point in time someone will probably come up with a bright idea to make things cheaper and uh, start cremating people. And with um, some of the rituals, you, you explained the smoking ceremony and the importance of that. Are there any other rituals, like, you know, two weeks or two months or one year later, are there any um, traditions that are followed or observed? Well, there's a lot of... Um, so there's the, you know, like you hear of people uh, having to not be called as the person's name or invoking the name of the person, and uh, that's very much carried on everywhere. Yeah. And then also... A lot of people uh, still uh, carry out the tradition of uh, cultural tradition of uh, eating fish. They don't eat uh, red meat uh, during the morning period of your direct relative, and they're real. So things like uh, they'll only eat like snake, fish, or uh, blue tongue lizard. And then uh, some of the real serious, you know, if you get real serious, you don't even eat eggs. And so until the point of where your family decides you've mourned enough and grieved, you've gone through enough grieving process, and then they have a ceremony of introducing you back into eating meat again. And uh, 
primarily they might cook you a turkey or a guana and they'll get the fat of that animal and they'll sneak you up one day and uh, the person that's grieving and on eating fish is wanting to m maintain that thing to show their uh, sorrow for their relative and then but some people will sneak them up and rub their mouth and that with fat and then they cry with them uh, together they have a big cry again for the deceased relative and then the person then is, then is introduced back into eating meat again so they might be given a full turkey and a full guana so you better be hungry make sure you're hungry when they do it <laughs> but uh, that's a sort of uh, processes and it sort of helps with uh, people not getting uh, hooked up on you know uh, stuck on the memory of someone and also holding that person back from entering a new life and there's old traditional ways and uh, people think about how it used to be and how it is sort of changing and a lot of changes happening today and we have to understand that the world moves on and things change and one day there very well might be a crematorium here and people might like to get cremated but they don't like it at the moment. Gina, I'm going to post some links on both the Joy website and our Dying to Tell Facebook page, um, as well as on Twitter, so you can get some visuals of Yura Malay um, and you can have a look at the incredible work that they're doing Amazing to close uh, the education gap. Um, and there's also a photo of Joe and me recording this interview that I'll put up as well. And while Joe shared some of the stories of traditional Aboriginal funerals and, and his thoughts on what the future may hold... Our next interview is with Dave Kostorfen, who has personal insights into that future and wonderful stories of his involvement with the Indigenous community and particularly with his own Indigenous family. Dave Kostorfen is a registered nurse who's worked in remote Indigenous communities, amongst other things as a chronic disease coordinator with Sunrise Aboriginal Health Service in Catherine. Married to Jocelyn, who uh, was a member of the Wanyi Nation. That's right. Let's begin, Dave, with a little bit about you. Um, I first came across your name through the Go Gentle organisation, but you have a really long history of healthcare, and particularly within remote communities. Can you perhaps tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to work in Outback Australia? Um, originally, I, I was in the Army in the Survey Corps, and we were doing a lot of work in remote Australia, which I absolutely adored. Uh, then the Survey Corps started to wind down and eventually with the intention of being disbanded. And so at the age of 30, I went for a uh, tree change, come see change, and I'd always wanted to do nursing. And so up in Darwin, I found myself going back to university and studying there. And it was an interesting time because in terms of the dying with dignity, the euthanasia debate was very, very much at the forefront there. Yes, and in the Northern Territory. It was. And uh, there are only 12 of us in the final year in nursing. And it was interesting that we were very, very, uh, very active in, in the euthanasia debate uh, with the realisation that we would have to assist to administer it at some stage. And, of course, we know that that was overturned by the federal government back in uh, '96 unfortunately. So how did you then find yourself working in remote medical clinics and communities? 
I went from training in Darwin down to Alice Springs and from there basically started moving out to various clinics, remote clinics, which I I found I enjoyed the autonomy. But also at that stage, uh, I was living with Jocelyn, who uh, is, a, as was mentioned, was a, um, was a member of a Wanyi nation. And she and I basically had three children together, uh, plus we also had other children that we fostered uh, over time. And we spent a lot of time out bush because that was where she felt most comfortable and I certainly felt most comfortable. And we felt that it was also uh, a wonderful experience for the children to be raised in that environment. Where did the Wanyi Nation come from? The Wanyi Nation basically extend along the Nicholson River in the east of the Northern Territory. There's two Nicholson Rivers, one on the west and one on the east of Northern Territory, but the one on the east that extends from the Barclay Tablelands down through Doomagee, Burketown in Queensland. And the group basically extend across to Mornington Island as well. Okay. Many Australians, Dave, say that they, they want to die at home. Um, but for members of the Indigenous community, home means something different. Look, it does. My, my wife, uh, Jocelyn, when she developed, when she uh, was diagnosed with cancer, um, for her, she felt it was important to go back to the country in which she was born. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to explain how... Uh, they feel about country, but the tie to country is is absolutely enormous. Uh, one of the things that I have seen over time is a number of members of the Stolen Generation, for instance, who have been removed as children, and yet when it comes to getting older and wanting to go back and die, uh, they want to go back into country. They feel part of a country, even though they've been removed from it many, many years before. Jocelyn, though, was it was an interesting case. She and I discussed after she died, and we were able to, um, with the help of a palliative nurse up in Doomagee, we were able to allow her to die literally by the river that she was born on. Um, because we travelled and we had so many strong connections around Australia and various communities, the decision was made to cremate her, and then her ashes were then sent out to be distributed all over Australia. Uh, we felt that was the best way simply because of the importance that, well, the, 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 cha- the, the, the difference she'd made to so many people's lives. So, Dave, what happens when people can't get home to country? I mean, are there ways around that? Well, a number of, there were situations where I can remember Jocelyn talking about her grandmother who was di- died and was buried at Najibara. And while she was a traditional owner of that area up in the Northern Territory, just across into the Northern Territory on the Queensland border, uh, although she had strong links to Mornington Island, they couldn't bury her there and at Nudjaburra. So what happened there was that they brought a number of shells from Mornington Island to place on the grave. And often that's a way uh, that I've seen of people dealing with it, that they will bring dirt, soil, uh, seeds, uh, anything that is relevant to their the original country, but there's always this. There's always a problem that the family obligation, the way the families feel, the repatriation of be it repatriation of the body or the bones, uh, 
there's always this great fear of dying out of country. It really, that the spirit just won't be settled. Would this new legislation have changed Jocelyn's final months? Possibly. However, Jocelyn was a very strong-willed person. Uh, she was very uh, keen to, even though we'd, we'd separated and, and she actually came out as gay um, in the last years of our, our relationship, and I was very supportive of that. One of the things uh, that she insisted on is she wanted to die in country, and I was very much for that. And so she said, look, we remain very, very close friends, extremely close friends. Uh, and she wanted me to facilitate as best as possible the ability for her to go back to her community and die there. And we were lucky at the time that there was a nurse at Dumaji Hospital who had palliative training and had worked in palliative care, and I liaised with her, and we were able to keep Jocelyn at home right through to the end, and that was pretty important. Sadly, it's not always the case. A lot of Aboriginal people, but the fear of nurses and doctors is they don't know what they're looking at, whether it be inexperience, uh, and they'll often evacuate a person out to a larger, uh, a larger town or larger hospital, uh, where they seek further treatment, but the reality is the person's going to die anyway, and there's not that recognition of it. And the person feels very uncomfortable, and sort of it would hasten, I feel that it hastens their death sometimes unnecessarily uh, because they just will themselves to die being out of country. And it's a very strong feeling, and it's very important to them. Uh, so, in order to this this legislation would allow i feel a lot of people who have been through the stolen generation to go back to the country and connect with the country uh with quality time with their family um, uh, aboriginal people uh, they've they are still very accepting of the fact that they are of death and and they have various rituals around it and um, so it's not as though it's a foreign subject to them. I know places like when I was working at Kintor, which is up in the Pinterby Health area, up in the Western Desert, the attitude towards death there and dying was far more accepted than, than often we do in our Western society. And I uh, had a situation with a fellow, Banjo was his nickname, an old Aboriginal fellow who was one of the last wild tribesmen to come in to white society or at least to civilization if you could call it that out there um, in to Kirikura in 1985-86 and in 2002 uh, 2000 yes 2002 at the time he was in his 80s some I'm not sure what age no one really knew but he had basically wandered the bulk of western Australia all his life uh, he knew of communities, he knew of towns, but he'd never been anywhere bigger than probably Yuendamu, which was about 500 people. And he was going into congestive heart failure, and I spoke to the doctor, it was a weekend, and I spoke to the doctor in, on call in Alice Springs. Now, he was aware of the situation of Banjo, and he said to me, I could bring him into Alice Springs, I could fly him in on the plane, we'd put him in intensive care, uh, we might even make a decision that we would want to send him down to Adelaide for tests. 
But he said to do that would kill him anyway. And he's dying. He accepts that he's dying. The family accept that he's dying. Instead, ask him what he wants to do. And I spoke to Banjo and he said he wanted to go out and talk to country. And it was the most interesting trip. We went off for probably three or four hours and everywhere, every so often he'd say, stop here, boy, get out. And he'd start talking in language to trees and to rocks and um, and various places that he would say, this is, this is important because this is what happened here and this is my relationship with this. And a few days later, he died uh, surrounded by relatives in Ewan Demu at the clinic there. And it was a very, very joyous death in that it was what he wanted. It was what the family wanted. Now, there was always this fear of repercussions from a lot of nurses think, oh, there'll be repercussions if the person dies and they'll go. What they don't understand is the, the, the grieving process and the wailing that goes on and that when you involve family, there isn't the, uh, there isn't the payback on the nurses and the like. They, they, the family are very forgiving and very understanding and I think we don't, really give credit to a lot of Aboriginal people. We, we assume that because they're not as educated as we are, that they don't understand the whole process. They're very, very understanding of processes. They may not understand from a scientific, biological point of view, but from a social point of view, the ability to die in country is so, so important. And if it doesn't happen, they feel that there is a disconnection with spirit. And as a result everything's out of balance. So can you explain perhaps some of the other traditions and rituals around end of life and, and even sort of the funeral process? The funeral process can be massive depending where you are. Uh, it can take, uh, we would have an, a number of clinics out in remote communities would have basically two more, two, two coffin fridges out the back, which we keep the bodies in. And I've, I've known bodies to be kept for three, four months before we even have the funeral. And that is to allow, that was always to allow all of our relatives to get to the community if it had to be there. And there is this social expectation that certain people, certain relationships will be there at the funeral to pay their respects. And so it can take quite a while to organise. And then there's often a Surrey camp and the Surrey camp is where the relatives go through that whole grieving process. And everyone goes down there, spends time with the relatives, um, sympathises with them, uh, talks to them about um, uh, it. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a ceremonial thing and it's a celebration in a way, but it's also a chance for everyone to go through that grieving process. And you'll see it... A lot of Aboriginal communities, you'll you'll see at funerals, a lot of wailing, a lot of emotional uh, outpouring. Of, uh, it's and it's a way of dealing with it. And then there's usually a period after that that um, the the wife might sort of go into a a bit of isolation or whatever, and the and have only contact with certain family members. And it, mind you, this varies from community to community. But, um, but it's a, there is a very, very strong ritualised process around it. And it helps them to feel that 
everything is connected. Every that the whole circle of things is is has come to be. So finally, Dave, um, are there any traditions or rituals that your family observe around Jocelyn's memory? There is. Uh, there's not a day goes by that I don't think of her, and I'm, it's nearly been four years since she's gone. Uh, certainly the recognition of her um, from the point of view of uh, carrying on the work that she was keen to do. She was very, very active in domestic violence work, uh, so that that whole idea of pushing that. But also she was very active in the idea of tolerance and acceptance, and I think that's probably the, the, the greatest thing that we carry on. I certainly see it in my daughter, a younger daughter, who uh, who at 14 was actively campaigning for same-sex marriage and mm. has been actively involved in minus 18 and is uh, very, very... Uh, Actually, she's very intolerant of people who are intolerant, <laughs> but very much that acceptance. Oh, it sounds like a wonderful legacy. Dave Colstevin, thank you so much for joining us on Joy today. Thank you. You know, Gina, after my time in the Kimberley last year, I really felt that there was so much for us to learn from our amazing Indigenous community um, in life, but also in death. Next time on Dying to Tell, we're going to be travelling in a completely different direction. We're off to San Francisco, where in December I attended the inaugural Endwell Symposium. What is Endwell? Find out next time on Dying to Tell. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.